Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast that gives you the tools to thoughtfully interpret the Hebrew Bible. I'm Tim McNinch, a PhD candidate at Emory University. And I'm Dr. Rachel Wren with a very long title. Rosie Candethel has the week off. The first reading for January 16th, 2022 is Isaiah 62 verses 1 through 5, which follows nicely from Isaiah 43 last week, right, Tim? Yes, that's what you did. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yes, uh, as, as you all probably know if you followed the RCL, there is a lot of Isaiah in the lectionary. Mm. And uh, as we've talked about in the past, uh, there are two main parts to Isaiah, uh, one that's set during the monarchy and the other during the Babylonian exile. Mm. And some scholars identify chapters 56 to 66, the last part of the book, as a third Isaiah mm. composed back in the land and focused on the work of rebuilding after the return to Jerusalem. Now, whether this is at the end of the exile anticipating return or on the other side of the trek home, our lectionary text in chapter 62 certainly participates in that sort of laser focus on the restoration in Jerusalem after a generation of exile. Though the first reading calls for verses 1 to 5, the natural boundary of the text runs at least through to verse 9 and probably all the way to verse 12. Yeah, I, this is such a beautiful passage, isn't it? Oh, definitely. It it almost sounds as good in English as it does in Hebrew. Yeah. It, it's got such a powerful cadence to it, like a rhythm. For mm -hmm. Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. Yeah. I mean, I can't read it without hearing MLK's sort of cadence in my head. Yes. Um, so if if you're using this passage, recruit your best reader to recite it. And it would also be a great tie-in to MLK Weekend, remembering mm -hmm. a modern prophet who would not keep silent or rest while the rescue and rights of God's people hung in the balance. Absolutely. When you were reading it, that's where my mind was kind of going, but I couldn't really put a figure specifically to it. But when you said MLK, I was like, oh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay, Tim, so, so what insights do you have for our listeners on this beautiful text? All right. Well, uh, this prophecy starts out with the image of a city that's been decimated by war and is not yet restored, lying desolate, a place given scornful nicknames by the surrounding peoples, Azuva, abandoned, God-forsaken, Shmama, desolation. Mm. And then someone speaks up, for Zion's sake, I won't keep silent until her vindication glares like the sun. Huh. And Zion, by the way, is a kind of poetic personification of Jerusalem. And also that word there, vindication, is a pretty good translation of the Hebrew word there. But notice that in the Hebrew, it's simply the word tzedek, righteousness. Yeah, yeah. But here it's not meant in the sense of Zion's moral uprightness, not that kind of righteousness. Hmm. It's a righteousness in the sense of, of wrongs being righted, of hmm. slander being cleared. The speaker wants the world to see who Zion rightly is. Hmm. So vindication works pretty well here. That's really nice. I love your attention to the voices of this text. I hadn't really picked up on it that that Zion is sitting there and, and people are speaking cruel things to her. And it's mm -hmm. almost like this voice cannot stand it any longer and so speaks out against those other voices. Yeah, yeah. So, so who's speaking? Is it the prophet who won't keep silent or is it God? Uh -huh. Right, right. That's, that's a great question. And in fact, it's, it's a bit ambiguous here, right? Mm -hmm. 
which kind of makes sense. Often a prophet's words and God's words get kind of mingled up in these texts in such a way that the prophet expresses God's heart as his own speech. Yeah. So I think maybe both is probably a good answer to that question. Hmm. Although grammatically, this prophecy is framed for the most part in the voice of the prophet who speaks of God in the third person. Hmm. And this prophet says that God will make Jerusalem a beacon to the world. And uh, in this section, two main images are used here to give shape to that process. Okay, so one of those images, I'm assuming, has to do with this naming deal, right? Yes, exactly. God's going to replace those slanderous nicknames, God-forsaken, desolate, with new names. My delight is in her, mm. Chetziva, and married land, Beula. Mm. Naming itself, you know, is a, it's a really powerful motif in Scripture because names impart a sense of identity. Mm. And they often communicate intimacy and relationship. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing for me to say, hey, you, and another to say, Rachel. Yeah. It yeah. means I know you. We have a connection. Mm-hmm. And the names in this prophecy are kind of like God's pet names for Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. They're intimate. They're emotive. Mm-hmm. They communicate how God feels about her. God says to her, I'm delighted in you. You and I are bound together like a bride and a groom. And that's the second major image in this prophecy, a marriage between God and Jerusalem. Yeah, you're totally right. And it's a really common image for God's relationship with the people of Israel. But as a woman today and knowing about the broader kind of context of this image, it always feels yucky to Mm. me when we start talking about Jerusalem as her and she, especially in this sense of like, God being the the groom. I mean, there's some there's some pretty intense texts where God is a, a harsh or dismissive or even abusive husband. Yeah, that's that's totally right. And um, those sort of marriage images are even in Isaiah as well, yeah. especially as metaphors for Judah's exile, along with promises to bring her back, though she's been abandoned for a while. And you could you could look especially at Isaiah chapters 49 to 54 to find that motif there. Mm-hmm. But in this passage, the, the image is a bit different. God's affection for Jerusalem is framed It's kind of the the flush of young love. (laughs) There's a sense of newness in this covenantal language, a a sort of fresh start. Mm. I get that. I see that turn here, and I think that could be powerful. I'm guessing where you're going is that one still has to be careful with that marriage metaphor, especially in like a patriarchal, heteronormative context. Is that is that kind of where you're going with this? Is a preaching pitfall? Yes, uh, absolutely. That that is a preaching pitfall. We have to be careful not to assume that our own norms about courtship and marriage map onto the image that's here in this ancient text. Hmm. It's picturing marriage in a cultural context that was definitely heteronormative, and where generally the bride and quite possibly the groom didn't hmm. actually have any say in the transaction. Yeah. That marriage was often an economic social structure. And yet it was also a context in which true affection and love could blossom. Mm. In that sense, this prophecy presents kind of like a best case scenario mm. where the groom is simply gobsmacked by the loveliness of his bride. Mm. There, there are repetitions in this passage of the words delight, chafetz, and joy or rejoicing, mashosh. So I think it's appropriate to latch on to the affect of the metaphor 
um, while recognizing the limitations of its context, and then interpret it with with reimagined metaphors that come from our own context. You know, falling in love, experiencing intimacy, resting in the security of a committed relationship with one's beloved. Interesting. So you're almost saying like the the metaphor as it is interpreted in the ancient context doesn't work for today, but the way we interpret the metaphor of marriage could be a sort of corrective or or addition to the text, which is a helpful way for us to think about it. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think the the part of the metaphor that doesn't break down that carries through across that hermeneutical gap mm. is the affect of it, the the perspective, yeah. the feeling of God towards the people. Mm-hmm. And we can, um, you know, refill modern metaphorical containers with that same affect. Nice. Very nice. Okay, cool. So, so what's the, what's the like defined preaching angle on the text then? Mm. Well, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, the issue of Jerusalemite exceptionalism yeah. And and that theme again is here in this text in spades. Yeah, right. <laughs> God's affection is directed towards Jerusalem with a focus that can be compared to the exclusivism of marriage. Hmm. But if we read God's relationship, God's covenant with Israel as a microcosm of God's love for the whole world, hmm. then this prophecy contains a powerful affirmation for all of us that God loves us and identifies us as God's own and mm-hmm. acts for our sake. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's certainly biblical material out there about the kind of living and behavior that we owe the God who created us. But this isn't one of those passages. This one emphasizes that God acts for us. It's about how special we are to God and how God delights in us. That's a really nice, I mean, I think that's another way that our modern metaphor of like falling in love works in this way. Because if you think about that first blush of young love or falling in love, where you're so enamored of the other person that your love just like expands to the whole world around you and everyone around you seems wonderful or beautiful (laughs) or that sort of thing. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I think this this has a lot of potential in it and pastoral potential as yeah. well. I remember when I was pastoring, um, I had a conversation with a congregant once who had been away from a religion for a long time and was kind of you know testing the waters again. Mm-hmm. And for her, her her main issue, her hangup was that she just felt anonymous to God. Mm-hmm. You know that if God has the whole world to worry about, why would God even notice her? Huh. She was really bothered by her sense of unworthiness, that maybe God was right to ignore her. Mm. And so I got to share with her this mystery of God's love, the, the kind of love that's embedded in a prophecy like this one, that God's love isn't limited like ours is. Nice. God can hold the whole world in her hands, as the song goes. Hmm. And yet when God looks at you, mm. there's an intimate, personal, deep delight and joy that God has, especially over you. Yeah. God knows you by name and even may have special affectionate names for you. <laughs> that's delightful. Yeah, yeah. And that's a message that we'll preach, especially for those in our congregations who feel that they are the God-forsaken and desolate, who wonder if God even notices them at all. Huh. This prophecy says that they are, in fact, a crown of beauty in God's hand. And ateret tifaeret, as verse three so beautifully puts it. That's really powerful. And I actually, I, I'm tearing up a little bit hearing you say that because it reminds me of a story with my grandma. And the kind of larger idea is that um, 
you don't always know who those people might be who are overwhelmed by the sense of their own unworthiness. My grandma was in her upper 80s and she was a devout churchgoer and prayed all the time, talked about Jesus all the time. And I, we talked once when she was, I think, 88 or 89. And she said, Rachel, I just recently realized that when God talks about loving everyone and being delighted with everyone, that means me too. Hmm. And it was just, it was, it was life altering for her at age 88 or 89, after having lived a life that seemed so embedded in that sort of overwhelming love of God. So I, I, that sounds like a simple sermon, but you don't know who needs to hear it. And all of us do in a way, because it's so easy for us to get into patterns where we think it's all about what we're doing and trying to become better people and being nice to people, (laughs) you know, all of the just sort of like moralistic gobbledygook. And we need to hear the good news that God delights in us. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, not just even beyond us as individuals, but us as communities too. Mm, I mean, this mm-hmm. is a, this is a communal text. So, and it was directed in the first place at a communal relationship with God. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Uh, really the theological term for that is election, right? Election mm-hmm. of a people. And, and you and I both belong to Reformation traditions, as we've discussed, yeah. that really value this theology of divine election. Yeah. This is a passage that helps give a communal shape to that theological concept, yeah. uh, which is so often misappropriated when it's taken in only in an in individual direction. Yes. It can be insightful, for example, to notice that um, the Hebrew word for delight in this passage, which repeats a couple of times, chafetz, means delight in the sense of pleasure found in one's choice, hmm. a sort of delightful pr- preference, you might say. Hmm. And in this passage... Whom does God show preference and experience delight in? It's the brokenhearted, the forsaken, Mm. the desolated. So divine election is a message of hope to them, that they're not, as a people, overlooked by God. Mm. They are instead exactly the kind of people who are the objects of God's preferential attention and deep love. Nice. A friend of the the podcast, uh, Kathleen O'Connor, (laughs) <laughs> uh, who we had on when we were talking about Lamentations, has a, a nice little essay on this passage in the resource called Feasting on the Word <laughs> and puts this theme of election in words that are much better than I could give. So, so maybe I'll wrap up um, by quoting her. Yeah, uh, Kathleen says, This is the God of the poor, afflicted, enslaved, and downtrodden. This God tells them that they are chosen, singled out, selected from all earth's people as God's beloved bride. Isaiah's passage supports divine election, not to buttress the contented, to uphold the secure, the confident, or the arrogant. Isaiah's theology of election is a rhetoric of immense power because it tells the poor, Hmm. the second-class nation, the excluded and cast-off women of this world, that God takes immense delight in them. Mm -hmm. And I would only add then that this message is especially timely now when Mm -hmm. so many in our congregations feel lost or cast off or outside the scope of God's love and intimate care. They, it turns out, are the community in whom God takes special Mm -hmm. delight. Mm. That's a beautiful place to end this week's episode. Thanks for that, Tim. That was really wonderful. My pleasure. 
Folks, remember all of our episodes are at firstreadingpodcast.com and posted weekly on our Facebook page. We are so grateful to those of you who can sustain First Reading with your donations, and you can find that with the big donate button on the website. And of course, if giving financially isn't in the cards, don't worry about it. We're just happy to have you listening and getting something helpful from this resource. Thank you, as always, to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for their generous grant and support of First Reading. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, I'm Dr. Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Have a great week.